Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. If you guys would all please stand up in reverence for the word of God. I'm going to do something a little bit different today. You can find it on page 949 of your pew Bibles. I'm going to take only sections of this longer text so that we can summarize it. Um, you can find the full instructions on page 949 to 950 of your pew Bibles. So this is from the NIV, Ephesians 5. Wives, sub- oh, no, I'm going to back up. Verse 20, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We're going to dive in. I'm going to pray in just a minute. I didn't forget that part. I just want you to know where we are. And um, we're in a series in the second half of the book of Ephesians that we're calling Bond of Peace. Because in this part, rooted in all of the good truth of God's plan in the first part of the book, the letter to the Ephesians, Paul now transitions to how to live that out in unity with one another because we are in Christ together as children of God. And so he's been talking about unity among believers and he switches at this point to unity within a household. I don't think I need to say this, but here's a trigger warning. Sometimes people have used this statement when they're in position of power to force obedience rather than to look for a willing submitting to one another in love and in uh, reverence to Christ. So even if you've never heard this passage, just hearing that word submit, you might be triggered right now. I want to just speak peace over this space and let you know this in a very clear and direct statement. This passage has been used by people in power already to justify unhealthy subjugation, especially based on gender and race as a historical fact. We believe that such justifications in air quotes are entirely false and outside of the biblical narrative of the way of Jesus. I wanted to read that so you were clear on what we were not talking about in this passage. Spoiler alert on where we are gonna land I I put it in uh, the newsletter this past week in case anyone was scared to show up to church. From Lynn Kohick, I will read this. Paul eliminates the power of the superordinate, the one who's more in power, the husband, the male or female slave master, and he elevates the importance and worth of the subordinate, the one in the lower in the power dynamic. By so doing, he effectively cuts the bottom out of the institutions of patriarchy and slavery. That's what this passage is about. So, 
He doesn't track down these institutions directly. It's true. Darn it, right? Wish he would, but he doesn't. I'll talk about that later. But he does indeed unravel their foundation here. So we're going to go into this with open minds and see if maybe this is something different than we thought it was about. So this is the part where I pray. Let's just pray together. God, um, I thank you for your word, your holy scripture. I trust you. I trust the Holy Spirit. I trust the way of Jesus. So I pray that you would help us to see your abounding love in this passage, your love uh, that is for justice for the oppressed, your um, loving challenge to those of us who do have positions of power or influence that we could follow in the way of Jesus in radical ways together in Christ. We pray all of this and protection over this space in your name. Amen. So this is a rather infamous passage if you've been around church for a while, right? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then the next line says, wives, submit to your husbands. And we're talking about this on Mother's Day. And the funny thing is, true story. A few weeks ago, I had surgery. I'm fine. Everything's good. It was planned. But I was like a couple days just super fuzzy. Couldn't do anything except like coloring books, literally. And uh, after a couple days of feeling fuzzy, I was like, I think I have my brain. I'm ready to outline the second half of Ephesians. And so I did. I broke it into sections and I was like, here's where we're going to go. This is going to be a great encounter Sunday last week. And then a little while later, I plugged it into the calendar where I saw Mother's Day as a tag on our little outline. And I was like, oh, should I move it? And then I said, no, I think this is a good idea. So um, here's what we're going to do. For this passage, context is key. I'm going to put the summary back up here with a little um, extra summarized things. And so what we're seeing here is all under the umbrella. We have to remember this the whole morning, even when I'm not saying it, is under submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then we get to these summary statements, um, but they go much further into detail. You guys, I have... Okay, I'm not going to get out of order. I have to stick to that. I have so much to say. It's bad. Okay, context is key. So we have to start there. In case at this moment you're a little bit worried for me to get from this passage to what I just said about undoing these power dynamics that have been used to oppress people before. If you're like, that's a bit of a leap. I think Melissa's about to preach what she wishes this section would say. Or maybe I'm going to get up here and say it's culturally irrelevant, so we don't need to read it. I will not do that. All of scripture is holy scripture, spirit inspired and useful for instruction and knowing the heart of God for all of time. So we will, in this church, we will wrestle with scripture on its own terms, not ours. On its own terms, we can do hard things. I heard in my reading this week, one cheeky scholar named Andrew Lincoln advised pastors, if you find this passage irritating, teach it out of the lectionary, which is like this thing that goes through all of the scripture in order for all of the church every three years. Apparently the lectionary skips it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's a funny way to go about it, but I'm not going to do that. We can do hard things. My commitment to you this morning, I am using resources smarter than me. We will lean on sound scholarship, not the desires of our modern sensibilities, not tossing it out as culturally out of date, but consider how can we today still engage with this passage as very relevant to us still today, but remain rooted in the original context for comprehension on how to apply it in the lives of those following the way of Christ. Now, so you know, I went through these and I started gathering all this stuff, so much reading this week. And Sam and I thought, you know, the easier thing to do might be to 
make a link to my, some of my summary research from these passages in the newsletter this week. If you want to learn so much more, because I am skimming a surface to get to our end point that I already said. If you want to learn more, look in the newsletter. We'll link a six-page document full of content from these smart people. Um, but the first thing I want to say is this. Context, context, context. The first piece of context that we have to start with is put this passage within the fullness of the letter to the Ephesians. Don't pluck it out as a one-piece instruction on how to be like a wife or a slave or something, right? Don't do that. In context, we are still a part of the same thought as last week during Encounter Sunday. Be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in songs and psalms and all of that. Be filled with the Spirit, giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be filled with the Spirit as you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I've entered back in that be filled with the Spirit a couple more times than is actually in the text, but we are still in Paul's same thought. As Gordon Fee clearly states it. In the immediate context, the imperative or the instructions here that we're reading today has to do with community life, both last week's passage and today. Here perhaps is an even greater need that God's people collectively will be so full of God by his spirit that our worship and our homes give full evidence of the spirit's presence by song and praise and thanksgiving and by the kind of submission of ourselves to one another in which the concern is not who's in charge around here, but how to love in the family as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This passage in its bigger context is about our community life together. And that's what we're talking about today. Number one, context. Keep it within the broader scope of the letter. Don't pluck it out. Number two, and we spend more time here, within the context of the first century culture in Ephesus. So what I want us to do a little bit is to get out of our mindset today and try to get into the culture in which this is first being heard, the original hearers of this letter remembering that this letter would be read out loud in a church, household church, who's gathered all together at the same time, okay? So we're all in this room together when these instructions are being um, read. So, but first, it's a little heavy in a tone, I'm going to give you a disclaimer. This is not in the Bible. This is not pastoral advice. This is just a story about household codes. Once Andy and I had a card somebody gave us, a greeting card. And in that card, I can't remember, it may have been a happiest Father's Day, there was a punch out the side of a credit card. This is not biblical. This is not pastoral advice. And on that card, so it, you could fit it in your wallet really easily, could always have it on you. And it said, I automatically win this argument. And on the flip side, it said, but now I have to hand you this card. And we gave this card ultimate power more than once in our early marriage. He held on to that. And I still remember to this day, I, can't, I wish I could remember the details, but I remember the feeling in my gut. It was one of those moments where I was like totally right and he was totally wrong. And something happened where I knew it and it was like teed up for an easy home run, like no problem at all. And Andy knew it and I knew it. And just at that moment, he grabbed his wallet. He put down that card. And I remember going, oh, 
And I took the card and I put it in my wallet and he won. He won. We gave ultimate authority to that card. This is not in the Bible. This is not pastoral advice. I'm just telling you a true story. And my point is this. Every household has a code. Even if you're single, your household has a code. Gigi and her roommates told me a little bit about their code. They live in a college apartment, and one of the rules is you have to have a roommate agreement actually written out, which is smart. Gigi told me this entire year she has never worn a sock with a hole in it because it freaks out one of her roommates. And all of her roommates have agreed to warn Gigi before they bite or slice an apple. She hates that sound, and she needs to be warned so she can plug her ears or get out of the room. They have abided by their house. Household code, household code all year. Every household has a code. If you're growing up and you're like, yeah, mine didn't, it was chaos. I guarantee you if it was not spoken and if it was not written down, you knew that code, even if it was unhealthy. You knew what to do when dad came home in that kind of mood. You knew what to do when mom made that face and you were never allowed to talk about that thing again. You knew the code, even if it wasn't good. Every household has a code. We tend to be postured in our culture now, do not tell me how to run my home. But we're back to being the first hearers of this letter. It was completely socially acceptable in to have conversations about how to run a home in broader society. It was completely acceptable. In fact, it was happening all over the place around them. So back to that slide where we have the summary and we have the who are we talking to, what we'll notice is that we have pairs of relational dynamics, power dynamics that are at play here. I just moved those people, right? So we have categories being listed, every person or category is being addressed, and what we have is as three pairings of power dynamics. And in each one, it was culturally known that one of those parties had less power socially in their context, and one had more within these pairings. Now, Nijay Gupta gave me a little bit of better history here. Um, well, they all did, but I'm quoting him. So there were multiple ancient moral philosophers, big thinkers of their day. In Greco-Roman culture, they were like the bee's knees and people, were people who had education were listening and processing their thoughts, right? So philosophers like Aristotle and Seneca, they addressed the proper way of running a household for the greater civic good. And this is really important. So the dynamic, the, the, the way that they went about it, the pattern they used was the same every time. It was the threefold dynamic of husband and wife, parent and child, master and slave. This was a pairing that was used by philosophers all around them to explain how to run and maintain order in your home. And in that society, Greek and Roman philosophers, they firmly believed that society would rise and fall on the basis of well-ordered and obedient households. That's Nijay Gupta. So it was not just as individualistic as we are, make sure your house and your nest is at peace or whatever. They were like, the entire good of our civilization depends on, get it back, 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 back to its nugget, a orderly home that will change all of society. That was what they believed. And so they instructed people on how to run their homes and there was legal backing to this, this way. So in that culture, 
it was believed that the family was a basic unit upon which all of society was built. It all started at home, but it was a, more like an estate, broader than our little like, you know, condos and apartments and stuff. It was like, um, it was in a system that was called paterfamilias. You don't need to remember this. There's no quiz. What that means is that there was a head of the Roman family and there was legal power attached to that. So I asked the Google to summarize this for me and the Google said, the paterfamilias was the oldest living male in a household, and he could legally exercise autocratic, that means my way or the highway, autocratic authority over his extended family. It means the father of the family or the owner of the state. Think more like the godfather in the movie, The Godfather, than dad at home. Okay, this is broader. Actually, one of the scholars I read said, like, it's, it would be crazy in their culture to think that we could take something that was meant as a broader estate running with social obligations for the running and all of that, to take that and plunk it individualistically into individual homes without broader social uh, accountability for how you're doing your paterfamilias job. She was like, that would be crazy to them to remove that uh, community, communal social accountability. Anyway. Oh, I went off. Okay, don't go off of this. So the important thing about the godfather here in this situation is that there was legal rights attached to the relational dynamics that um, enforced what these philosophers were saying and how you needed to run your home. So legally, their culture treated most women as minors. They were minors, no matter what their age was. They were minors to someone else with a very, very small exception. Slaves were legal property. They were legal property. They belonged either to a man or a woman. When we address slave owners, that could be a male or a female as a, as a, a, a master. Uh, parents maintained legal rights over children, even as adults. So you don't necessarily turn 18 and have your legal rights, okay? So these, these codes are tied up not only in social norms and expectations, but in the legal system as well. Now, a quick note here. Let's say you're looking at these and you're like, I don't fit into these categories. I don't think that this sermon is for me. I want you to know, you guys, these are stylistic categories for this argument. People in the ancient Near East would not fit into these. Like, what do I do if I'm like, you know, single or a widow or a step parent or like, I don't fit. No, it, this is a stylized argument that's going on here. Everybody, everybody belongs. We have got to read the rest of Ephesians. We know that for without a doubt. And a special note to the singles, because we are going to talk to some about marriage here. Um, not the whole time, but some, but a note to the single. I want you to see Paul in other places specifically points out that women can be fully apart, fully human apart from marriage. Duh, for us, right? But not for them. You guys, men can as well, but that was assumed. People wouldn't have assumed that a woman could be fully human outside of marriage. His encouragement not to marry or remarried if widowed was an unheard of opportunity for women in that culture. First Corinthians 7.40, he says, in my judgment, she's happier if she stays as she is. So for Paul, the decision is hers and based on what she wants, you guys, culturally. Just, you gotta, you gotta get into that culture to think like, this is a crazy um, progressive thinking. So, okay, that's just a note to the singles, but we do have to talk a little bit about marriage too. But it's not really about that. Um, the bigger thing, I want, you to, I want you to hear these instructions. So he starts off with instructions to, in each pairing to the one in lesser power in that society. Please just hear that. Like not now and not intrinsically, but in that culture, in that, how they uh, 
worked things out. They start, he started with the one with the less power. And his instructions to them, because we're sitting here as the first hearers, are total no-brainers. Wives submit, children and slaves obey. This would be like, yeah, what, whatever. It would be like if I looked at you today and I said, parents, feed your children. You would be like, thanks, Captain Obvious. I kind of knew not only that that was my expectation, but there's legal ramifications if I don't. That's like neglect and child endangerment and like you could get in trouble. It would be that obvious, the first pairing of what we're hearing in the original context. But he, again, is borrowing the same pattern as the world around him. Why is he doing that? The church has to exist in the place, the location, and the time in which she is planted. And that is also true for this church in Ephesus. They have to be respected by their neighbors. This is the language they know. We're going to use these well-known cultural power dynamic pairings to now say something different. And so one question that could come up is like, it seems like he starts out really great for us with the whole mutual submission. Why doesn't he stop there? Why does he go on and on with these other power roles and go right back? Why not stop at verse 20? Craig Kinnear says this, the answer, because he was smart. His social statements are among the most progressive of his day. But if he wanted the gospel to gain a strong hearing in the Greco-Roman world, he needed to temper his radicalism with prudent sensitivity to his culture. Be relevant where you're planted. We're going to use the same lingo as the world around us. I'm going to take a super brief look at some highlights on what is being told to some of the parties in this passage. We see that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. A brief note on this, that love, how Christ loved the church was fully self-sacrificial. It gave of self to the point of death. That is that kind of love for the church that was given. And now husbands are called to that level of self giving towards their wife. You guys, that is a way higher calling in my estimation than the call to willingly submit to the opinion of one's husband. That is a way higher calling of sacrifice. So let's note that, what is being asked of the husbands. Okay, if you're a husband, remember we're pretending we're in the first hearers, you're squirmy right now. That was a big ask on you. The wives are like, no duh, and the husbands are like, oh, oh. Okay, so get in that context. Parents, not shocking words here about parents, but it's in the delivery. As a really quick note, in case you're wondering, in verse 6-4, why does Paul specifically talk to fathers? Even in that culture, it wasn't that fathers were the more important parent or anything. Uh, wives, uh, mothers were very involved in the upbringing of their children. It was literally because of the legal control issue. So this has nothing to do with, like, you know, the importance of the role of both parents in the upbringing of children. Quick note. But here is what is important in the delivery that's happening here. Remember, again, together as a family, free and slave children are hearing this together with their parents. In speaking publicly to children, this isn't like, you know, the elite off in the marketplace thinking about the philosophy being spoken about other household codes, right? We're all in this together. We're getting instruction. And the church leader just told my mom and dad how they have to treat me. And I heard it. I know we are equal participants in this family of God. And oh my gosh, I've just been told how I'm supposed to be treated 
it's important. Like how I'm treated in this family is important too. So the delivery to children too is something that is really like a beautiful thing in my opinion. When we go to the slaves and masters, this one's really hard in my opinion to gain practical wisdom for living today. Some people say, of course, slavery has been abolished, so um, we could take this to in the employee-employer analogy. And I understand that. I respect that. I disagree with it because there's like a compensation exchange that still happens. Like, I'm working, but you're paying me. Like, we have reciprocity. There's not that same reciprocity. By the way, this slavery is different than the American slavery, which introduced the concept of race in order to force subjugation and kidnapping and human trafficking. That's a different thing. Roman slavery is awful as well, but it's different. So I might be standing as a middle-aged Greco-Roman slave-owning woman next to my middle-aged Greco-Roman slave, and she and I may look exactly alike except for maybe like what we're wearing. So it has nothing, it has nothing to do with looks. But the thing is, we're standing here together and we're hearing this message. But back to what I was saying, it's hard to gain much for living today because slavery has rightly been abolished. But I love how Lynn Kohick does do one thing to modernize it. I give this to you as just like a thought. Today, the institution of slavery is illegal in Western nations, but the scourges of sex trafficking and pimping remind us to be vigilant against the human impulse to control another's body for personal gain. So we can get to the impulse, like you're for my gain, and you are a tool that I have at my disposal. That would be the impulse that we still can make this relative, uh, relevant for us today. But going back to the ancient Near East, where I'm standing next to my slave, and we're hearing this together, you guys, this whole letter has addressed slaves. This woman standing next to me is completely equal heir to all the promises of God, completely equal member of Christ's body. God's children who await for inheritance, they didn't have an inheritance promised to them, but now they do. In front of me, I'm hearing that too. You are honored by God, a child of God. And so now you imagine if you were a slave owner and you're listening to this, you're like, I really have chosen to follow the way of Jesus. I have got to shift my mind in some of the ways that we do this together. So if we back up from the details and go big picture, Paul, empowered by the, the Holy Spirit, Spirit is radically progressive in how he addresses the second party in each of these duos, the one with more power. The first part, not so radical. The second part, absolutely radical. And when you hold these instructions as Christ follower household codes up against ancient Near East household codes, can't say that so many times fast. What we're seeing is like, wait, followers of Jesus. Now, look at this new thing. Now that we are in Christ together, how should our household have its code? Every household has a code. How do we do it? And while the Greco-Roman codes tended to focus on obedience, because this is the starting point of all of an ordered society and world, which by the way, Pax Romanus was how Rome intended to keep the peace through violence and order. It was started in the home. They tended to focus on obedience. And what we see here, if we look at this with fresh eyes, is that this code also, and the other ones like it in the New Testament, also reinforces care and compassion and genuine concern, especially for the parties with little, less, or no power at all in the society in which they are placed. One of the questions that I like to ask when I read these codes is why didn't Paul just 
toss them out and say, no mas codes, no mas patriarchy, no mas slavery, we're not going to do any of that anymore. Scholars agree he's not encouraging these things. To use Sam's language from a few weeks ago, it's just the water in which he is swimming. He wouldn't have been able to envision a non-patriarch world. He wouldn't have been able to envision a world where the social structure with all of its craziness didn't include the purchasing of humans as property. It was assumed. I found myself stretching for my own analogy for this, but um, uh, Nijay Gupta, who wrote one of the books, but I also had a couple of classes with him, so I've heard his story, and it's um, it's really a sweet one. His daughter had cancer. She's healed, praise God. But at a very young age, he went through um, a two-year-old having cancer. And he uses this analogy. He said, the chemo was awful to watch my little child live in a world where the only thing we have to treat this condition is chemo. It's awful. But nobody was walking around suggesting that there were other op options that were less awful. Cancer means chemo in the world today. And so what he said, if, we can't, if he can't envision another option, like he couldn't as a dad, but in the meantime, maybe Paul wanted to see it become the best version of itself or perhaps a little less toxic. So we can kind of see it that way. Like, I don't have a vision for anything else. This is the water I'm swimming in. How can I make this reality of where I live, first century Ephesus, a little less toxic? By following the way of Jesus. So this passage in its context was huge progress forwards towards the one, honoring the one with less, or caring for at least, the one with less power in that culture. So to take this passage today, and to subjugate the one with less power would be a horrific misstep backwards and completely against Paul's point, the Holy Spirit's point, God's point in following in the way of Jesus in mutual submission in reverence for Christ. So that's what we have to hear when we look at this. So how do we honor the relevance of this passage still for us today? Like I said earlier, we hold tensions around here a lot. Our culture is different than in now, but we don't dismiss scripture. And this one is still in here. The way we don't dismiss it is by going to verse 20. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's have a real life moment for a minute. Have I ever submitted to Andy willingly and against what I wanted? Yeah, of course I have. Have I ever watched him willingly lay down a true desire of his heart and something that he had 100% right to do or pursue to benefit me when he saw that my desire would help me flourish more than his desire would? 100% I have watched him do that. The truth for those of you who are married, real life relationships in the way of Jesus mean mutual submission, folks. It's going to happen in both ways. If you are married, however you spell out your household codes, in prayer, in dependence of the Holy Spirit, as you figure it out, you are going to have to decide where are you going to submit 
And where are you going to lay down your life for the flourishing of the other one? This is mutual submission and the call is really high and in marriage, it is hard work. Unfortunately, I don't have the easy way to figure out how to do it. I'm just saying mutual submission is a real thing in marriage. I believe the Holy Spirit can empower us to do hard things in wisdom. But this passage goes way beyond marriage, you guys. The point is not about marriage. The full household of God, like the group listening to this together, living out life in Christ, where the household went way beyond the four people living in my condo today, way beyond that household. How are we going to live that out? How are we going to live a mutually submissive life? We have to go back to the passage where we started by the power of the Spirit, by being filled with the Spirit in our gatherings, in our homes, in our relationships with one another. It can't just be chaos of all of us walking around willy-nilly submitting. Like, would we ever order dinner if we did that? No, you decide. No, I submit to you. I submit to you. We'd never get food. It's okay that someone can be the decision maker in any group. I use a silly example, but like mutual submission has to use wisdom. It's not blindly obeying the other and vice versa. That would be confusion and chaos. Mutual submission is about mutual respect, care, concern, and a spirit of graciousness. No one, no matter how high on the pecking order, gets to play the boss card because only Christ Jesus is that head of household in the life of the church together. So we look towards, with meekness and humility towards the one who needs to be uplifted in power dynamics. Here's another thing I would say about mutual submission. Authority in power dynamics, it doesn't disappear. Those power dynamics don't necessarily disappear. We have to be alert and aware of them. Authority is not a bad thing, but submission and authority can seem mutually exclusive until we look at Christ who as Messiah, acknowledged Messiah, got down on his knees and washed the feet of his disciples in John 13. In serving, he retained his authority. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, Ephesians 4.24. Jesus taught any leader among the disciples had to become other people's slave, Matthew 20.27 and Mark 10.44. So how do we take this to light to us today when there still can be power dynamics in any household relationship, but how do we look? Cynthia Westfall says this, this must be taken to heart and practiced primarily by those who are advanced, excuse me, advantaged, socially, economically, physically, and racially for it to have any effect on the Christian community. That's how we practice this passage of scripture in our context today. Honoring what it said then, but now being able to make it into our language now, that's our biggest takeaway for today. This is how we live this out in reverence for Christ. Now, let's say you come to me in a few weeks and you say, Melissa, We have studied scripture, we have prayed, we have considered our own household code, and we truly believe that our roles are based on our gender, and that's how we want to define them. Guys, that's fine with me. That is totally fine with me. We can disagree on this, and I have no problem with that whatsoever. If you've done that in the bond of unity, if you're in unity and you've made those decisions together, mutually submitted to one another in reverence for Christ, and you choose a different way to decide who does the dishes, I have no problem with that. We're not going to fight. Heck, I'm the one who still wishes we had that card somewhere. We gave it to Andy's brother when he got married. I'm the one still trying to remember how to eat an apple now that Gigi's home for the summer. It's fine. 
with me how you write your household codes. I'm just saying, that's not what this passage is primarily about. Who's going to do what? It's not about who's in charge around here, right? Gordon Fee. This is about power dynamics in our relationships together in our world today. And it is about a Christian calling to a high degree of intentional compassion and care towards the powerless and a radical way of living in mutual submission and relationship to one another in reverence to Christ. And this is the key, in Christ. Philippians 2, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Mutual submission in Christ means wisdom and discernment through the Holy Spirit on when we willingly give, where we support where we lay down our life church in Christ we can do hard things like submitting to one another in reverence for Christ laying down our power for the uplifting of another following in love the way of Jesus going on in this passage because of how he lived and what he did and does still now right verse 9 therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father you guys, we are safe with one another to mutually submit when we stand in reverence together under who Christ is and participate in him as we're called to do. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.